you are listening to When the Bell Breaks. I'm your host, Alexis Arolin. Why don't you tell me about your book? Because I I have to admit, you know, just having moved and stuff, um, I haven't been able to buy it yet. <laughs> I plan on doing that soon because um, I read the foreword. Um, oh gosh, it's exciting! Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because um, I'm hoping that you'll be able to kind of, you know, give us a little bit of peek into that. Sure. So the book is about. Um, I was under the age of four when my father abandoned the family, right? Mm-hmm. And he left out the front door and this man came in the back door the same day, became, eventually became technically our stepfather. Wow. And me and my sister knew who our real father was. And I longed for that. Mm-hmm. I remember walking to school on a regular basis. You know, every week I would imagine in my mind, he's going to come around the next corner and he was going to, you know, take care of the bad guy and, set things straight and our family would once again be reunited reunited and mm-hmm. everything would be perfect like what I remember it was mm-hmm. back when I was very young but um I didn't realize this for a few years but my mother was having an affair with my father with this man who became my stepdad my real father did not have the coping skills to deal with that mm-hmm. And my mother, my father, my stepfather, they all used to drink together, do drugs, whatever. My dad decided to become a drifter, literally. He would travel from, like, Rockford, Illinois, to Dubuque, Iowa, his hometown, Milwaukee, Memphis, Omaha, Lincoln, Nebraska. He would, he would, he would catch a freight train. He would jump on a freight train, take it to Denver or wherever it would take him, stay at a rescue mission, work at a day labor to make money to get drunk and do it all over again the next day. He wow. would just, wow. and I, I don't want to believe that, you know, yeah. he was my hero. Right? right. And so my mother and father are from Iowa, Dubuque, Iowa. And, you know, when I got a little bit older, I was able to go to Dubuque, Iowa to see my extended family. And the hope was to see my dad and, Somehow, some way, they were able to, his sister was able to get in touch with him, his sister Grace, Grace, and she would um, call the rescue mission or whatever and let him know that his kids were in town, mm-hmm. in particular, me and my sister, and I was able to spend time with him, mm-hmm. and I, I would express to him the ill treatment, you know, I was being beaten by both my mother and my stepfather. Uh-huh. Because you have to understand, this is the thing. I have four. I have four brothers. Two of my brothers are from my father. I had a baby brother when he left, and I had a brother in the, in the womb. And then when my mother got with this new guy, she had two sons to him. But not, none of my brothers knew anyone as a father except for my stepdad, who was alcoholic, drug addict, drug dealer. Yeah. And uh, he was a he got to be the size of three fifty. He was six foot five, and he befriended my dad to get access to my mother. You know, and my mom and dad were still together. So he, um, my dad was just a pawn more or less. Mm. 
so when my dad first left, everything was my dad's fault. The fact that we lived in the projects, were poor, had no food, it was his fault. But then there was a shift. The blame went from being squarely on my father to me and my sister. Everything was our fault. Hmm. So my stepdad would go into these rages and he would beat my mom and he would keep us locked in the basement while my mom would be at work second shift sometimes third shift and we only got let upstairs to use the bathroom or when it was time for dinner and then we were allocated we were sent back to the basement you know mm-hmm. hours on end you know and i was a daily reminder to both of them my mother and my stepfather of my dad because I'm just a little kid. I would ask my mom, when is dad coming home? You know, I didn't understand yeah. at that time. And my stepfather did not work, but he had enough money to do drugs and alcohol, hang out with his buddies, etc. Yeah. So in third grade, I decided to get a job. And my first job was sweeping a parking lot in a neighborhood restaurant, two bucks. I'd typically do it on Saturdays for $2 and I'd give that money to my mother to try to help out. I thought I was making a difference. And yeah. the thing is, whenever my stepfather would beat my mother, and by the way, he broke her collarbone, broke her jaw, ripped her face open. Um, Goodness gracious. She would turn around and beat me. Everything became my fault. And my sister's fault, right? Yeah. And she will lash out. And we there, there's this term called parentification, where my sister and myself were the parents to our younger brothers. Yeah. Change mm-hmm. the diapers. We would feed them because my mother was too busy getting drunk and high. Mm-hmm. And she would get so drunk that she would pass out. And me and my sister would have to care for her. And I know that sounds unbelievable, but that's what it was. Yeah. And the, living in the projects, there's kind of a stigma, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but my stepdad always promised to get us out of the projects. He always promised that us that. And, you know, in the, ni- in the 1970s, for a white woman to be with a black man was really frowned upon. Yeah. And my extended family many of them were very racist Mm -hmm. and they really didn't accept me or I should say they didn't really accept us as a family unit. Yeah. And particularly my two younger brothers because, you know, their dad is black and mom was white. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And because of that, you know, there was threats made against us and they, they threatened to kill my stepdad and, he in turn would take out his frustration on us and yeah. particularly me and my sister. Jeez. And um, he got into this routine. Now it wasn't, I, I need to make a little side note here. It wasn't just my stepdad. My mom was very a sick individual too. There's something called mental illness mm-hmm. and they both suffered from that. Yeah. My mother, my stepdad and my dad. My stepdad liked to, he was a big boxing fan. He liked Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, mm-hmm. etc. And so did I. I liked Ali. But what he would do was he would have me take off my shirt, stand in front of him as he sat in his chair drinking his brandy. 
and he'll put on a clinic of how you're supposed to punch, you know, the proper way you're supposed to punch a person. Mm-hmm. And he would instruct me to punch him in his chest, and then he would punch me, knock me down. I busted my head open a couple times, and that was his form of entertainment, right? All I right. was literally his punching bag. So we get out of the projects, right? Mm-hmm. And I got a job as a paper boy uh-huh. to continue to help my family out. And this is what I used to do, Alexis. I used to go to the local drugstore and I would buy my mother her favorite car, you know, like a, like a throw rug for in front of her kitchen, mm-hmm. like kitchen sink, or I'd buy her a coffee mug and I would buy my stepfather his favorite candy just to kind of buy their affection, right? Yeah, right. But it was never good enough. Yeah. I to know the what point. That's like. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you can relate, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I, I really got tired of the treatment I was I was dealing with, with the way he was treating me and my sister and my brother Greg, my mother. So I quit I quit the paper out, and one particular night, essentially he pulled a gun on me, and he pulled the trigger, oh. asking me why I quit the job. And instantly I peed my pants as I ran away oh down to the basement. I was in fifth grade. And, cool. um, so fifth grade, you had a gun held up to you by yes. your stepdad. Yes. What happened? What happened then? So just to kind of set things in context, I was walking on eggshells for, for a lot of years, right? Yeah, yeah. And when he did that, I'm embarrassed to mention this, but I would just... I'd be afraid to get to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night because he would be down there doing the laundry or drinking and watching TV. Yeah. I ran down the stairs and I hid behind the furnace so he couldn't, he couldn't get to me. He was a big man, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another pattern started where him and my mom continued to drink. Now, we moved out of the projects. Things got to get better, right? Right. I'm, I'm starting to give up hope on my dad. I mean... I've been wait. I I used to want my dad to be so much in my life. Mm-hmm. I used to dream I could fly. I would fly to Dubuque every night mm-hmm. after school, mm-hmm. and I would be with him. And I'll fly back in the morning before school. Oh. I mean, that yeah. happened all the all the time. So what happened was, we're in this new house. I'm trying to, I'm trying my hardest to get along with him, but things continue to escalate to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah, and the abuse of my mother was no better. I mean, just before we moved out of the projects, I was in fourth grade. We went to a teacher, a teacher parent conference. Mm-hmm. And in the past, my mother has always kind of just flew through the school, signed the papers and we go home. Well, yeah. not this time. She, uh, she had us get on some clean clothes. I had no clean underwear. So I was putting on a pair of pants and I got stuck. Right, I got the zipper, the zipper stuck uh-huh. on my private part, and I had to walk four blocks to the school, go through the whole process, and then walk home. And then she tells me to go take a bath. Usually, the oldest kid takes a bath first. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get unstuck, so I cried for her help. She comes upstairs with a cancer stick in her mouth, cancer stick meaning a cigarette, 
Okay. And she kind of pushes me back. I kind of step back out of her way. I was in the doorway, just bawling my eyes out. And she grabs a zipper and up and down with such force and such hatred that I, I bled like a stuck pig, oh you know? Oh, God. And I went to my room, yeah. covered up, put a rag over it. No hospital, no doctor, no nothing. That was that was my life. So um, shortly after when my dad, my stepdad put the gun on me, uh-huh. you know, I got to go to Dubuque and I told my real father and my family members and instead of them calling social services or calling the police, they called my stepdad and cussed him out and threatened him with his life, uh-huh. right? They cussed my mother out and all the while, I was like, what's that going to do? That's just going to piss him yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so when I got home, this is in the summer now, uh-huh. um, I was kept locked in the basement every day while my kid brothers and my sister had limited freedom. You know, they got to ride their bikes or play in the backyard. Yeah. But they were they were kind of really underneath the fist as well. I think we all suffer from Stockholm Syndrome. So what happened was um, there was a point in time I was being locked in the basement every freaking day. Saturday they apparently went to the park without me and they left the basement door unlocked. So I went up there and I said, "You know what? I've had enough." Yeah. I went. I went to my mom and stepdad's bedroom looking for this gun because I decided they can clean up the blood, they can clean the brains. I've had enough. I'm at, I'm done. I am completely done. Yeah. You were I how old? Find... You were how old again? At this like point? Seventh grade, sixth grade, right around there. Um. So then, what happened? You said you were done, and then what happened? I went looking for this gun. I couldn't find it, and I was in their bedroom, and I heard the car pull up. So I. Like an alley cat, I ran back downstairs um, so they would never know I was in their bedroom. I fixed their blankets, and, you know, I, I was real sneaky about it. Yeah. And and that's when the light came on for me. And I believe it was God saying, look, you need to be there for your sister and your four brothers. And from from that day on, that was my motivation to never quit, to never give up. Yeah. In, spite of, in spite of the fact that my dad left me, left my family, mm-hmm. in spite of the fact that my mother was supposed to love us and cherish us and take care of us, in spite of the fact that my stepdad hated me and treated me like an animal, I would not let them kill my spirit. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. For regular updates and information about the show, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So after seventh grade, my mom decides to leave my stepdad. She sends me ahead of her on a Greyhound bus to Iowa. And she, once I get to my grandparents' house, my dad's parents, she calls and says, I need you to find us an apartment. Now imagine, I just finished seventh grade. I'm just a young, young kid, right? Yeah. I called like 50 landlords. 
asking for an apartment. And my grandmother's like, you're just a little baby. Do you think you're playing a joke? I said, you know what? I have to try. Yeah. If this if this means we're getting away from my stepfather and my dad will come back like the Lone Ranger and, you know, accept my two baby brothers, mm-hmm. I have to do it. And guess what? I found us an apartment. Wow. The guy, you know, he took the deposit. My mother moved up. The only hitch was my two baby brothers didn't come with my excuse me, my other siblings. Mm-hmm. My mom couldn't get them away from their father. So I went into eighth grade and I really, really, really struggled. Not just with the schoolwork, but it was traumatic in the sense that I was like a father figure to these two very young boys, right? Yeah. And I was failing eighth grade. But to make matters worse, I envisioned for several years my father was going to come back and make everything right he was my hero it never happened he never happened the abuse at the hands of my mother toward me and my sister toots only intensified her drinking only intensified to the point she got us evicted and guess what we had nowhere else to go we ended up going back to rockford illinois to my stepdad and just a few short months later me and my brother greg we decided we're, we're tired of being threatened with our lives. We're tired of being told every day we're going to get put into foster care because they don't want the white kids anymore. Yeah. So we ran away. And December, it was in December in Illinois, we walked around 20 miles through cornfields and, and fields trying to walk to Dubuque, Iowa, which was like 93 miles from Rockford. We didn't know how far it was, but desperate people do desperate things, right? Yeah. We turned ourselves into the state police station. We said we've had enough. Um, And this, it gets a little graphic here. So just, just uh, a full disclosure. So it was in December in Illinois. So you imagine it was was brutal out, cold, muddy, messy. We ripped up our coats, jumped through barbed wire fences, and they came and got us. My stepfather and my mother took us back home ordered us to the backyard. My stepfather got out the garden hose and he, he took pictures of us with all of our clothes on, our winter coat, etc. Sprayed us out with the water hose and then he made us strip naked and took more pictures. And then sent us to the basement. And he couldn't kill my spirit. Yeah. And this is the thing. I didn't mention this before Mm -hmm. because it's pretty graphic, Mm -hmm. but right around the time when he put the gun on me, um, him him and my mom would get really drunk. He would beat her up to a bloody pulp, and he would bring her into my bedroom, and I can hear him coming in. You know, I was so still, I would stop breathing. I pretend like I was dead. He would throw her in my bed. And he'll say, hey, boy, you're going to screw your mother. Obviously, I didn't move. I didn't breathe. Yeah. He got tired of waiting, I guess, and he would go upstairs. And she's wailing at the top of her lungs. I don't know why my brothers never woke up, but they didn't. And she was like, I'm going to die in your arms tonight. I'm going to die here on him in fifth grade. Feeling for a heartbeat, for a pulse. 
taking a wash rig and washing her face off. That was my life, right? Yeah. Do you remember what day of the week it was? It was usually on Friday nights. Yeah, yeah. I had another guest. His answer was it was just Tuesday. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's just what it was like. It was just Tuesday, you know. It's, you know, people who grow up in a quote-unquote normal family, they don't understand that, you know? Right. Yeah. Gosh. And, you know, the thing was, things continue to unravel. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of completely given up on my dad. And I have anger and resentment, um, unforgiveness toward him. Mm -hmm. toward my stepdad and my mother but eventually the summer of the following year she left him again for the last time we we ended up in a battered woman's shelter mm -hmm. and then we got in an apartment two or three months later and so we're finally away from the monster right yeah we're finally away from the one that caused so much torment the one he used to beat us with a wooden paddle or an iron iron cord or with a he'll go out back and make us get a switch yeah, mm -hmm. and whip us with that. Um, it wasn't just a swat on the butt. He would make you strip down naked and come out. He would have you come out into the rec room, bend over the stairs, and all, all your siblings, all of my siblings would be around watching as he beat me. <sighs> Um, we're away from that finally, mm -hmm. but the, my mother's drinking, smoking of weed, yeah. just got worse and worse and worse to the point that, um, I got a job working for the, there's this program called CETA where you can earn high school credits and make money to graduate early. So I got in this program and one particular summer I was working in the projects on which I worked where I once lived and I saw my stepdad. Now this is the person who hated me. He is, this is the person that will put me on the phone with my grandparents asking them to take me because they couldn't stand me. This is the person that would wake me up in the middle of the night and beat the, the bloody mess out of me Yeah. because of some, um, he, he thought I did something. He just assumed that everything was my fault. So he'll take it out on me. Yeah. This person, I approached and asked if I can live with him. And you say, why? Because things were so bad with my mother. Hmm. They were so bad. Wow. And he just laughed in my face and walked away. And that's when I made the decision to join the Navy, mm -hmm. uh, delayed entry program. I was all set to graduate first semester of my senior year. But August of that just before that, August of 84, she, she decides to move back to Iowa, which pulled the rug from underneath me because Iowa wouldn't accept a lot of my credits from Illinois. Mm -hmm. Essentially, you have to go a full year is what they said. Mm. I ended up going to an alternative high school. I needed two credits to graduate. When I wasn't in school, I was at the Y working out, lifting weights, jogging all over the city, just getting ready for boot camp. 
And when I wasn't doing that, I was investing in the life of my brothers, you know? Yeah. And it was at this time, I'm still carrying around some resentment, anger, and unforgiveness for my dad. Mm-hmm. And he he's in Dubuque now, too. But mm-hmm. he's a helpless, hopeless alcoholic living at the rescue mission. He only comes around us when he's drunk. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't let him be around my brothers when he's like that because... I was their protector. Yeah. Right? Yeah. His sister, Grace, sat me down and explained to me his full backstory. Uh-huh. The fact that he was born with um, a hole in his brain and he he didn't, he, he was never playing with the full deck, right? Oh, I see. And he had bipolar, um, effective, um, maybe a touch of schizophrenia, whatever. Uh-huh. And I, I discovered for the first time that my mother cheated on him with my stepdad. And he didn't have the, the tools to deal with that. Answer me a question, Lexis. Mm-hmm. If you're going to leave a wife, if your husband leaves you, why would he abandon his kids? Why not stay in the same city? I'm not saying that's right. Marriage is supposed to be for a lifetime, forever. But instead of him staying in the same city so he can self-spend time with us, no, he didn't do that. He became a literal hobo, a drifter. But it was in that time in his life he found happiness and joy. My aunt took out all these scrapbooks of these different rescue missions, like in Denver, Denver, Colorado. And who's in the middle? Who's like in the center of the page? My dad, with a big smile on his face. He was happy and content. I was confused at first, but then I understood it. I got it. The light came on, and I found that ability ability to forgive him, mm-hmm. to release that anger, to release that resentment, and to let it go, right? Right. So I go into the Navy. The day I leave to go to boot camp, my mom, you know, all this time she keeps telling me, you're never going to make it in boot camp. You're a loser just like your father. You are your father's son. You're pathetic, whatever. Yeah. Or this one particular day in January, I was waiting to get on the city bus. She comes storming out the front door, and her she's so angry. Her first, her face is contorted, and she's just screaming at the top of her lungs with a cancer stick in her hand, telling me that I can never come back there to live, that I, I'm dead to her, whatever. And I, I was embarrassed, yeah. not for me, but for her. Yeah. And I was worried about my brothers. So I go into the military and I don't really have the coping skills to deal with real life. You know, I never really felt accepted by anybody. I never felt like I belonged. So these guys I hung around with like the party, like to hang out with the women mm-hmm. and they dealt with life on life's terms in a way that's all too familiar, like my mom and stepdad did. But for me, I found it took away the pain. About drink, the the hurt, the anger, the resentment, the unforgiveness toward my stepdad, my mom, would dissipate till the next day. Mm-hmm. And that pattern continued. I got an honorable discharge, got out of the Navy, but the pattern continued where I just I was just uh, a train wreck. Uh-huh. I like I like to work things out with my fists, right? I was taught the things I was taught as a kid is you deal with your problems through violence deception and debauchery right 
Uh-huh. And that's what I did. So I got in the Navy, um, bought a house, bought a car, had a good job. I lost it all because I was carrying around all this anger and resentment. And I, I, it would manifest itself through thing, the choices I made, you know, mm-hmm. bad relationships. I would drink to the point of excess in order to just take some relief away. Uh-huh. I know this sounds really pathetic, but this is what it was. No, yeah, this is uh, your truth. This is, this is a lot of people's truth, really. You know, you're not right. the only one. So it's good that right. you're talking about it so people know that it's like, yeah, you're not the only one. <laughs> you know? Right. Thank you for listening to When the Bow Breaks. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so by sending an email to wtbbpodcast at gmail.com. The thing is, I promised my grandparents, my dad's mom and dad, my dad, my grandpa was in the Navy. He was in Pearl Harbor. And I said, I will not be the typical sailor. I won't be the guy that goes into these foreign countries and fights and tears up the city and gets with all these women and just hell on wheels. But that's what I became Mm -hmm. because I was I was acting out for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term. Right. Yeah. So get out of the Navy. um, I put myself I did this to myself. I ended up homeless because of the choices I made. Mm -hmm. Um, and in 94, I moved to Iowa on, um, by this time, me and my dad have a really good relationship, right? Mm -hmm. He says, why don't you go to Dubuque? And, you know, Dubuque has a really bad reputation for no work, but I took his advice, moved to Dubuque, met my wife, um, got married. Uh, less, Less than a year later, I became a Christian and then I found out I was going to be a father for the first time. And it was now, Alexis, I, I need to explain something. I feel like I had full closure with my dad. And I thought because I love my mother so much. I mean, up until this point, I moved to Iowa. She would come visit people in Iowa and she would come visit me. I would roll up the red carpet. I would bend over backwards for her. I was trying to buy her acceptance as an adult. It was never good enough. I was never, ever, ever good enough for her, ever. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to be a dad now, right? Yeah. And I thought, my stepfather got remarried, and I went to his wedding thinking that was closure for me. His, His sons asked me to be in the wedding, and I did that for them, and I did that selfishly because I thought it would give me you know, I can close that chapter of my life once and for all. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was um, when I knew I was going to be a father soon, you have to understand, I never wanted to be a dad. And that's because of something called learned behavior. Yeah. Your parents talk to you, interact with you a certain way. Right, Alexis? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're going to unconsciously, subconsciously carry that on to your children. Yeah. And that curse continues. Uh-huh. That's what I was really worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, I Now, this is going to sound strange, but I started having dreams and nightmares of what I endured as a kid. 
when I knew, you know, my baby, my baby's son is on the way. Yeah. And I felt like God was telling me, not an audible voice, but, you know, in my heart, in my mind, mm-hmm. listen, I have forgiven you. Who are you not to forgive? And one particular day, I made a conscious choice, a conscious choice to finally and completely forgive my mom and my stepdad and to let no longer let them rent space in my mind, right? Yeah. In order to be the best person I can be, to be the best father, best husband, etc. And when I did that, Alexis, believe this or not, it was like a million pounds lifted off my chest. Yeah. I had that feeling when I forgave my parents, it was very difficult. Because it like was. you said, it was just all that pain and that abandonment and all those things that parents aren't supposed to do, you know, had um, had all balled up inside of me and I wasn't allowed to talk about it. And so I had a lot of anger and resentment, but it was like right at the same time I was just learning to talk about it in counseling. And I really struggled with the whole forgiveness thing at first because, you know, people were saying, oh, it's like this and it's like that. Oh, you just say it, just say you forgive them. I said, you know what? It's not really that easy. It's not like just like a magical phrase where everything just disappears, but it's like there has to be some thought into that. And what I came to forgiving my own parents, it was like, okay, well, why am I so angry with them? Well, because they did this, 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 or they didn't do this, this, and this, and I'm out. You know, I, I'm behind in my life and my growth and my development because of the things that my parents did or didn't do. And so I had anger about that. And then the question came up to me, what can they do to fix that? What can they do to repay that? Right. And I was like, nothing. They there can't fix they it. Can yeah, there is they nothing can. they can do. And so no. I just decided, okay, well, there, I mean, there's nothing they can do. And, and as long as I'm attached to them in this sort of way, I'm just in agony. And it's not helping the relationship anyway, even if it, even if there was a chance it could improve, this isn't going to help. And so I just decided to say, okay, they don't owe me anything anymore. I'm not going to ask them to repay. I'm not going to wait around for them to change. I'm not going to wait around for them to do A, B, and C to make up for that because there's nothing they can do to fix it. And so when I just released them from that debt, then it was like, okay, okay, this is a little better. It's a little easier. (laughs) I still had all the grief from separating from them. And I, I still had all of the same feelings. I still was angry and upset, but at the same time, it was less and less every day because I, you know, as an adult, I was able to remember that my parents didn't have that great of an upbringing either or an environment. And so, you know, then I was also able to identify with my parents on a whole new different level than I was ever able to do before. And so that helped, you know, take some of the sting out too, because, you know, as a parent myself, you know, I know plenty of things that, um, you know, like you said, those learned behaviors that kind of pop up and, you know, I have to like correct them and stuff. But um, yeah, just the whole forgiveness thing, it, I really struggled with it, but once I feel like I felt like I got it. And once I got it, it was something that that wasn't just just didn't just disappear all at once for me. It was something I had to practice every day. Be like, Oh, wait, no, 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 they don't owe me anymore. I'm not going to be angry about that anymore. You know, like, stop, I had to remind myself because like you said, you get stuck in that mindset. Um, They rent space in your mind. That's what you just said. They rent space in your mind. And it's like, I couldn't do that because I couldn't get on with my life, my daily life 
while exactly. I was allowing them to consume my thoughts like that. Yeah. So I started exactly. like meditation and stuff like that, which really helped give my brain a break. But um, yeah, I totally get that. And, you know, you said some, you, you hit on a few good points. The first thing I like to point out is um, if you close your eyes, you're in a big empty room, maybe like a, a reception hall or something. You got a family reunion. You open your eyes and your parents, either your mother or your father, are both walk into their room. Instantly, you feel anger and stress and anxiety. Does that, toward those people, does that mean that you have not forgiven them? Forgiven them? No, it does no, not. Not at all. Forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a decision, right? Uh-huh. Right. And as human nature, we're going to feel angry and kind of upset to an extent. I sure. mean, my stepfather, I had no dealings with him since we left him the last time. But he would show up at different events and we all were extremely uncomfortable, right? Yeah, right. Sure. But I choose not to have a relationship with him mm-hmm. because one thing I didn't mention, Alexis, and uh-huh. Maybe this isn't the place, but in the background, when I was locked in that basement with my brothers, mm-hmm. our bedrooms were downstairs, a TV, a toilet. My mom would be at work. My sister was upstairs with him, and I can hear him creeping around. And I always had suspicions, and I would talk to my mother about it. And what, what happened? She ended up sleeping on the couch. And she called my sister a whore and a slut. And when my sister became an adult, she confided in her husband that she was molested for like 12 years. Oh, my goodness gracious. To the point that she had two abortions, right? Mm. So on top of everything else, right? Yeah. It's my only only sister. Yeah, it's your sister. So to forgive him of that too, you know? We wanted to kill him. We were, we had guns. We were going to go to Madison, Wisconsin, take him out. But God intervened. Um, that's a whole nother story. And it's not in a book because it's not my story to tell. But that is what happened. But so it's okay to feel that kind of way sometimes, you know. But see, you also talked about learned behavior. You see, your parents had a rough upbringing. Mm-hmm. My mom, my stepdad, and my dad all had extremely difficult upbringings themselves. Yeah. But that does not give you the, the right, an excuse, to do that to your kids. Uh-huh. And that was my motivator. That was my equalizer. And that's why, you know, I was so hesitant on becoming a father because of that. It's like the stacks are stacked against me, you know, if that makes sense. It's yeah. like, you know. Not only was your mom, but your your dad, they both have this imbalance, you know, this twisted idea of what it means to be a parent. Yeah. They pass it on to you, and by default, you're going to pass it on. And I have to tell you, I have two sons today, 18 and 20. I'm proud to say that I've broken that cycle. I've broken that cycle of abuse, of abandonment, of mm-hmm. neglect, of hatred. I mean, my kids, every day, ever since they were knee-high to a grasshopper or mm-hmm. younger, 
I would hug them and tell them I love them. And they reciprocate that even now. Hmm. You know, not only they, hey, I love you. They call me Dada. Love you, Dada. <laughs> and they'll give me a big hug. And it's just, it's the greatest thing ever. It's great, isn't it? It is great. And it's my hope and desire that they will continue along those lines, that when they get married and have children, that they will be the best father they can be, the best husband, the best person. Yeah. And this, this is another part of this whole thing, okay? Mm-hmm. I found the ability to forgive all of those who have wronged me. Does that now make me perfect? No. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes I get really hard on myself when I make a mistake at work or at home and trying to fix this or fix that. I used to get into a rut where I used to beat myself up. And I know that came from my childhood. It's like, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not this. You're not that. Mm -hmm. I've learned over the process of time to forgive myself. Yeah. Whether it's something I say or something I do that's, I know is not right. Mm -hmm. Forgive myself. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, I don't, you know, I watched my mother be beaten like a dog for years, right? Right. And when I see, when I read or see or hear about someone beating a woman, that really strikes a nerve with me. You know, me and my sister were growing up, growing up together. We used to get into fights. Sure. And she used to beat the crap out of me. And you know what? <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit this. I wouldn't fight her back because I saw how my mother was beaten, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and I just don't hit women. And it's like, you hear all these stories about these guys. Oh, she, she hit me first. So I knocked her the hell out. Dude, really? <laughs> yeah. So listen, the, the thing, if I can backtrack just for two minutes, sure. Go ahead. I talked about, I talked about the story where I wanted to take my own life. Mm-hmm. There are so many people that may be listening to this that feel like, you know, they've been, it's been ingrained in them that they're worthless, they're garbage, they're not worthy of the ground they're standing on. I want to tell you that not only are you invaluable, that your existence is immeasurable, but you have a purpose and a plan and a calling on your life. Do I know what that is? No, I do not. Mm-hmm. But you have significance. You have importance, whether you're a father or a mother, it's irrelevant. If you're not now, you may be later. Don't believe the lie that's been instilled in your brain all these years, because for lack of a better term, you just have such value, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing is so bad that you have to just succumb to the pressure, succumb to the stress, succumb to the anxiety of living or wanting to be all you can be just try to rise above that and you may need help you may need to go to see a counselor you know alexis you mentioned one more thing that i wanted to hit on Mm -hmm. you said you went to counseling when we were kids when we were kids still with my stepfather we went to counseling i can think of three times all three times we went to counseling my mother squarely pointed the the blame and the, the her finger at me and my sister. Right. Everything was our fault. Yeah. Nothing got accomplished. Mm-hmm. Counseling didn't help. And being the oldest boy, you know, yeah. um, my my two youngest brothers emulated me 
right? Mm-hmm. They didn't they didn't emulate their dad. They yeah. talked like me. They acted like me, mm-hmm. and their their dad could not stand that, right? Yeah, right. And it's because I invested in their lives. They were my baby brothers, you know? Yeah. You are listening to When the Bell Breaks, a podcast for the estranged. You know, so going back from very young, I used to go to a local church for like at the school programs to stay out of the house. Yeah. And I, I'll be very involved with, you know, whatever I could to stay away from home. Mm-hmm. There's this anti-bullying policy, right, in our country. Yeah. Anti-bullying is a big, big thing, and I agree with it. The bully I had to live with and deal with was behind those four walls in which I lived, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was the biggest bully on the block, mm-hmm. day in, day out. And it was he wore these really dark glasses, like mm-hmm. almost like sunglasses. And, mm-hmm. you know, he would just, I don't know. I don't want to get into that. But the point <laughs> is, I got through it. I raised my children. And people talk about these helicopter parents. I, I was never a hel- helicopter parent. However, I was protective of my kids in a way that just the thought of somebody hurting my children, I would go off. Like I would just yeah, get extremely emotional because I couldn't tolerate the thought of somebody doing something to my kid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that's probably not the most healthy thing, but. Oh, I had the same feelings. That was actually the initial reason why I estranged myself from my parents because I had had all those suppressed memories and things and they started showing up when I started realizing my parents were doing the same things to my children. And that, that just like, it shocked me and a light bulb went off. And that was when I started pouring everything out and counseling. And then I was like, okay, I don't want my kids around my parents anymore. Exactly right. You bring up, you bring up a good point. So about 10 years or so ago, I was at my brother's house. My, one of my, um, technically my stepbrother, we have Uh different fathers. Uh We're at his house, and his I was in the basement with his kids, and my stepdad shows up with his new wife, and they're staying at some local hotel, mm-hmm. and I can hear them talking to my sister-in-law about taking my, uh, you know, their kids and my kids swimming. I'm like, oh hell, oh yeah, hell no, no you're, not, <laughs> you're not taking my kids anywhere with uh-uh, you. You're yeah. a freaking pedophile. <laughs> There's no way. You're taking my kid anywhere with you, man. Yeah. Now, this man is like 6'5", you know, mm-hmm. around 300 at this point, 350. And no way. No, no, yeah. man. Mm-hmm. They ain't going nowhere with you, Jack. Yeah. I don't care what you say or what you do. Yep. It ain't jumping off like that. Nope. Yep. Boundaries. That's, that's a, yep. That was a word that I started using in counseling, too. It's like... How do you stop seeing these people? How do you make sure that they can't hurt you again? It's like you have to set boundaries. You have to say no. You have to say, um, yeah, I'm not doing that. Or no, I don't feel comfortable letting my kids with you. And, you know, and you should know why, <laughs> you know, and things like that. It, it you know, and um, yeah, that's that's um, that should be a given, you know. Yeah, I, I just think that um, 
what what really breaks my heart is all these kids coming up today without a father mm-hmm. or without a mother, and they have no direction and no clear path on what you know on life. And I try to invest in these young kids' lives and make a difference because it's just so tragic, you know. Yeah. And they fall by the wayside. Yeah. They get pulled into these different groups and these different gangs and. They're trying to find acceptance in all the wrong places and they end up dead or in prison. And, you know, when people say we have such a bad community, you know, this city we live in is so awful. My response is, what are you doing to make a difference? Right. Are you a parent? If you are a parent, it's just that in your house with your children. Mm-hmm. And if you're a parent or even if you're not a parent, why not volunteer an hour a month or an hour a week at a local community center to invest in these kids' lives, to impact them? Because I can promise you, Alexis, when I was that real little, little kid mm-hmm. going to the after-school program at the local church, yeah, those women and those men, they impacted me in a way that I would never forget. Yeah. And, and for good, right? Uh-huh. No, they couldn't, you know— they couldn't get me out of that situation, right? Yeah. But they brought some positivity into my daily life, into, you know, something I look forward to. And I knew they weren't going to beat me or lock me in a room or they weren't going to call me names. They weren't going to ridicule me or whatever. Yeah. And I think so, there's been a shift with the the mindset of the people today. Everyone says these young kids coming up today, they don't know how to engage or work through conflict with their peers because they're always on their phone. Hmm. Well, that's true, right? To an yeah. extent. What can we do to help them? Yeah, exactly. Instead yeah. of instead of bellyaching about it, instead of being, you know, these kids are worthless. These kids are our future. Yeah, they like a guest just told me, he's like, they're just trying to live in the world that they've been given. I mean, what are exactly. they supposed to do? Yeah, it's like we're, we do have a responsibility as parents not to, you know, necessarily pigeonhole them, but, but you know, give them direction and help, you know, they don't know how to deal with any social skills hardly, you know, on a in a non uh, kind of a digital way. Um, yeah, I mean, I see groups of teenagers now and they're all staring at their phones and it's really odd. It's like I used to, you know, we used to just stand around talking and laughing and having fun. And I still see kids doing that, but sometimes, you know, yeah, it is odd, but they're like, you know, they're on battle on Facebook, you know, verbally with, you know, this other girl or whatever. And so, yeah, it's just totally different, you know, totally different yeah. now than it was, you know, when we were kids. <laughs> so let us, let all of us, you know, that are in a good place ourselves, try to get back to our communities. Yeah. When I, when I was in high school, in 10th grade, I volunteered at a local community center. I was an assistant baseball coach for eight, nine-year-old boys. And the funny thing was, some of those boys that are on this team, I went to high school with their brothers, their mm-hmm. older brothers, and they come from broken homes. They had no direction. They wanted the gangbang. Here I am, investing in their lives, making a difference. These kids won the championship, right? Mm-hmm. But we, we, we develop bonds. Some of the kids I still see today, years later, that can't be broken. I impacted, I imparted something in their lives that helped them 
to get through life Mm -hmm. to where they're at as men today. And I don't need accolades or I don't need, you know, like, oh, look at him go. I just want to help people. And that's why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. By me writing the book, um, When the Dust Settled, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, by sharing my story that I've been sharing with you today, I want to let people know that maybe you've been in a similar situation because my story is not unique. Mm-hmm. However, I've not only did I get through it, but I persevered. I found the ability ability to forgive, to let go. Mm-hmm. Because Alexis, this is the truth of the matter. There's so many people, it's just it's a subculture almost of people that like me were abused and locked in basements and locked in rooms and molested or whatever. Yeah. And they carry that into adulthood and they pass that on to their kids or to, to whoever. And they carry on all that anger on that uh, unforgiveness, that resentment, that hatred. I'm here to tell you that you can release that. As you mentioned before, let it go. Don't let them run space in your mind anymore. Yeah. And, be a better person and once you find that ability you're going to discover things about you you never knew you're going to experience a freedom a joy a peace that cannot be taken away the thing is a lot of men don't like to talk about the things i shared with you yeah a lot of those things in my book are not some of them are embarrassing or whatever mm-hmm. but it's real life yeah it happened mm-hmm and by sharing my story, if it inspires someone, it serves its purpose. And I know for a fact it has helped people. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm so thankful that I had you on this show. I mean, when I first got in contact with you and I read about your book, I just thought, wow, I want to know more about that because, you know... I, I, I'm still trying to, you know, let all of what you said to me just in the last hour sink in and all that happened to you and your family. It's just, it's kind of overwhelming, but the fact that you've been able to write it down and that you've been able to, um, express all of that to everyone is a pretty brave move. I've been trying the blogging thing for a while and I'm going to tell you it's tough. It's tough writing that stuff down. Like, I don't know how tough it was for you, but like, Man, I have a hard time writing <laughs> writing out my feelings, but um, I think that this book is a really good opportunity for people to kind of get your perspective on this. Um, can you take a minute and, and let everyone know like where they can get the book? Sure, but I'm glad you brought that up, Alexis, because someone says, well, why did you write the book? So when I became a new dad, I was still trying to work through some things. So mm-hmm. I started I started to journal. And what I discovered about journaling is it gave me even more closure. It kind of, it was more of a healing process for me. Uh I can't describe it any other way. Like I would write two or three paragraphs and my wife, she's probably written, she's probably read a thousand books, no exaggeration. (laughs) And I would read it to her out loud. Now this is the strange part. When I would write it down, I was good, you know, but when I would read it out loud, when I would get to an extremely traumatic event, I would ball like a baby. It's like I hit a brick wall. Yeah. And it was helping me. It was helping me immensely. So I want to tell you listeners that 
to begin with journaling to help in the healing process is something that you can't really put a value on. It, it is so wonderful. Yeah. So she's like, you should really write a book because it can help people. So I did that. It took me a very long time because of a lot of different reasons mm-hmm. with work, etc. Yeah. But you can find a book on Amazon. Okay. When the Dust Settled, Joe Potosi. Mm-hmm. It's also on Barnes & Noble and um, Zulon Press, X-U-L-O-N Press. I also have a Facebook page, Joe Potosi, as well as Instagram, Joe Potosi. You can find me there, too. And you on um, the Facebook and on Amazon, you can see excerpts, reviews of the book, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it can inspire a lot of people. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. <laughs> well, Joe, I want to say thank you so much again for coming on When the Bow Breaks. And um, I look forward to bumping into you again somehow in, in this whole realm of things because I, I one of the reasons why I wanted to do this uh, was so I could find people to collaborate with and work together on some things. Like you said, get in your community. And this is kind of our community, isn't it? The whole sub, you know, subculture, like you said, of, of you know, our whole kind of um, ways of growing up, I guess. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear and see, you know, hear from you some updates on, on what you're doing and um, anything else that's related to your book or anything else new that you might want to do in the future. I just, I'd love to keep in touch. I would too. And I thank you for the opportunity, Alexis. It was an honor and a privilege to speak with you. And um, thank you for your patience. And I'm glad we're, we're able to meet and to have this time together. Sure. Me too. (laughs) Well, you have a great day, Joe. Thanks for calling in. All right. Have a good night. (laughs) You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Regular updates and information about the show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you for listening to When the Bell Breaks. 